Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate that very much. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, okay? I want you to look around. I know there were several folks that told me they were, they were going to be gone this weekend, camping trips, different things like that. But look around for folks who aren't here in Sunday school, aren't here in church. Would you just make one phone call this week to someone who's, who's not here that you know normally would be? Would you, make, would you invite one other person to come next week and be a part of this with us as well, too? Would you do that? Would you just take an opportunity to say, you know what, I'll, I'll stop off by their house. I'll go by and see them. Let me, let me say this to you guys. The, um, if what you're expecting is that you get a pastor and he takes care of all that, you'll wear your pastor out. He can't be the one who does that. You are the body. The body is supposed to be the one who takes care of that. I think so often what we do is we look at church and we, th- we, ask, we ask God, God, how can you feed me? Rather than asking how we can be a part of being on mission with God. So I'm going to ask you right now, how many of you guys know one person who's not here today, right now? Raise up your hand. Okay. Would you make a commitment to me that you will contact that one person this week? Would you do that, yes or no? Yes or no? Okay. Just contact that one person, those folks this week, and just say, hey, we missed you. We missed you, okay? All right? Do that if you possibly can. And guys, uh, we're going to use these cards at the end of the service today as well, too. And I also want to thank Zach for praying for uh, 9-11. All of us remember where we were on 9-11, don't we? We all remember. I was, I was just outside of Columbus, Ohio, driving to a, an appointment with a bunch of pastors. When I, got, I was on the phone with a good friend of mine and, and heard about what was happening. And at that time, we thought our nation was under attack. And in a way, our nation was under attack. And, and uh, uh, you know, that's, we just need to continue to remember those families in prayer and remember our nation in prayer, too, as well. Okay? And... And guys, I, I want to say this unequivocally with you guys as well, too. Um, I have huge respect for those who served our military. I have huge respect for those who put themselves on the line as firefighters and, and first responders, as police officers and things of that nature in our culture. I mean, our nation has issues. Absolutely, we have issues. But I will still say this. I believe we're the greatest nation in the world, don't you? I believe we are. And I thank God for our nation. I thank God for what we have. And today especially, I think we need to thank God for, for what we have as well too. Okay? Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 today. And I just got a real simple message today. Just, just want to challenge you. What does it mean to say yes to God? I've been preaching on prayer lately the last several weeks. And just talking about what does it mean to really pray? What does it mean to really surrender? What does it mean to really lay ourselves down before God and and give ourselves fully up to Him? What does it mean to do that? What does it mean for us as His people to to do that? And ultimately it comes out to what does it mean to really say yes to God? Genesis chapter 22, let's begin reading in verse 1. It simply says, Now it came to pass... After these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now my son, your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place in which God had told him. Then on the third day, 
Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his, to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, who took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. He said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place at which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the ladder, do, excuse me, do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, and as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." What I want us to do today is take a really close look at this passage. When I realized what this passage was really saying, it transformed my life. And, I, and I'm going to be honest with you. I share the same thing with every one of my students that come through my class. It's one thing in my class that probably over the years has, has transformed and changed more of my students than anybody else. Anything else, I, I speak to them. The whole concept of what it means to say yes to God. Now, as I look at this passage, there's two basic questions that arise. I mean, obvious questions to me. First of them is, why would God require such a price? Why would God require such a price from Abraham? And number two, how could Abraham actually do this? How could Abraham actually do this? Excuse me. <coughs> I'm sorry, guys. Uh, anyway, this cough, I don't know about you guys. It just hasn't left, has it? You know what I mean? All right. But how could Abraham actually do it, and why would God require such a price? Now, let me, let me share this with you. The reason why this passage means so much to me, I'm going to ask them to bring a picture up. This is a picture I have of me and my little brother. It's in my office. It's one of the last pictures I have with my little brother. This is, this is right around my little brother's birthday, about a month before he passed away. I was three years old. I know you're going to look at that and go, oh, look at that little bald-headed kid, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, when I look at this passage, I have to ask those questions. You know, how could Abraham actually do this? Why would God require such a price? And when I look at this, and the reason why is because of what happened in my own family. Guys, I'm going to take you back several years for just a moment here. But 1986, I was home for Christmas time, and Debbie and I had been married just a few years at that time. But we began to feel like God was calling us to start a family. And I, I don't, I'll never forget that Christmas, kind of standing out in the hall. We told my mom and dad and them and her family that, hey, we just, I think it's time. We've been married three or four years at that time. And, and, and that night, though, particularly, one night, we were standing out in the hallway. I don't know how it is in your, your house. But in my house, in my, my mom and dad's house, it, there's, in, in the hallway, we had pictures of each one of us kids at a certain age. About, you know, two or three years old. 
My picture was with me and a little gangster hat on, and little shorts and everything like that. Kind of cool, you know. <laughs> but we were standing right in front of Kevin's picture, my little brother. And for the first time in my life, I asked my mom to tell me the story of what happened with Kevin. And my mom, she kind of got real quiet, and she took a deep breath, and she looked at me, and she said, okay, I'll tell you. She took us back to 1963. It was December, the, just a right around Christmas time, and let me say this, it, I always thought my family was kind of sadistic at Christmas. Let me tell you why. Because here's what we would do, we would, in those days, we didn't have the internet, you know that. So what we had was the Sears and Roebuck catalog, we had, we had JCPenney catalog, and we had the Peace de Resistance, which was the service merchandise catalog, you remember that? And we would get sent that thing, and we would, we would cut out pictures of what we wanted for Christmas. And we would, I would tape them on a piece of paper, and I would slide them under my mom and dad's door. Did y'all ever do that? Anybody else ever do that? That's, you know, and then we would wait six months, because they would send us the service merchandise catalog in like June. And so we would, all we would do is talk about the whole fall, about what we're going to get for Christmas. And so Christmas would come in our house, and you know, you'd get that bike you wanted, you'd get that, that racetrack you'd wanted, that, that thing you've been looking for. And then here's what would happen. Mom and dad would let us play with our toys for about 30 minutes, and then they would say, well, go get dressed. We're going to grandma and grandpa's house, which was just, to me, was sadistic, you know. We've been waiting six months, and now we've got to wait 24 hours to play with the toys we just opened, you know. And so they would let us take like a Tonka truck with us, you know, and everything like that. So we would go to grandma and grandpa's house, and mom told us, she said, we came back the next day, the 26th day of December. She said, we got home about 4 or 5 o'clock. She said, when we got out of the car, we all just, obviously, these kids just ran in the house to grab hold of our toys and start playing with them. And mom and dad, uh, she kind of shared with me everything she did. She said, she said we, we were kind of playing with our toys. My brother got an uh, electric uh, football set and that kind of stuff. You remember that when the little vibrating thing that run down the field and everything? <laughs> he got one of those. My sister, she got a Barbie RV. Have you ever put together a Barbie RV? If you can put a Barbie RV together without cussing, you're the greatest saint there's ever been. I'm just telling you right now, I put together two. I know what it's like. There's little pieces in there that just shouldn't be there, you know what I mean? And so mom and dad put this Barbie RV together, and mom said, we stayed up until about 11.30 at night and played with our toys. We never stayed up that late. She said, finally, she got us all in bed about midnight, and she said she just didn't sleep well. You know, just that mom's intuition. She said about 5 o'clock in the morning, she finally just rolled out of the side of the bed, and she walked down to the end of the bed. My little brother was in a crib down to the end of the bed. Mom said she looked at him, and she said his lips were already turning blue. She screamed at my dad and says, John, get out of bed. Something's wrong with Kevin. And my dad saw Kevin, too, and immediately jumped out and just put his coat around him and his pajamas and and. and Started and ran outside. There was about six inches of snow in East Tennessee and ran outside to get the car ready. And, and mom ran in there in the bathroom, just put her, put her coat around her basically and had her house shoes on. And she said when she was in there, she heard this gurgling sound. And she went over to pick up Kevin. And she said Kevin in her arms literally just winced up and looked at her like this and said, and then just went limp in her arms. She ran down the hall. And the only thing I remember about that morning and I can still remember this, was I heard commotion in the hall, and I ran out, and, I ran, and mom ran by me, and she said, David, go back to bed, and I did. My brother and sister weren't as fortunate because 
they stood in the kitchen and saw Kevin with his eyes rolling back in his head and just don't know if he was having a seizure or what was taking place. And in fact, it impacted my brother so much that he knew to the exact day when my nephew was the exact age Kevin was on this day. It impacted my sister hugely, impacted our family. Mom says she ran out to the car. Dad slipped and slid to the hospital as quick as he could get there. They called ahead and just so happened that the same doctor who brought me and my brothers and sisters to get in, the, in this world was the same doctor who was on call that day. And mom said she jumped out of the car, ran, and just laid Kevin in his arms. He, um, he went back and dad went back with him for a while. He worked on Kevin for a while. And then dad said he came outside. Mom said he came outside and stood with him. You get this picture of this couple in their late 20s, Christmas time. 27th day of December, 1963, standing there holding on to each other in their pajamas, waiting to find out what happened to their little boy. Mom said that she saw the door open up, the back, and she said as the doctor walked closer, she could tell, she'd tell he'd been crying, and mom said when he walked up to her, he just looked at her and he said, I'm sorry, but Kevin's gone. I mean, how do you react to that? How? Guys, for six months, we slept crossways in the same bed, me and my brother and sister, because my mom was scared to let us go back in our room. She told me, she said about six months later, she was reading the 23rd Psalm one day, and when she read, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. She said, I felt a sense of the presence of God like I've never felt in my life. And the, the Lord simply said, Juanita, it's time you trust me. Guys, for 22 years, I had migraines. The doctor said, went back and started at that moment. It impacted our family in huge ways. Some of you maybe had the unfortunate thing of, of losing a child. You never get over that. We'd find my mom after Christmas every year on 27th day of December in a room someplace else. You know, I mean, it just, that just does not go away. That's why I asked the question, why would God require such a price? And how in the world could Abraham actually do it? How? Let's go back and take a closer look. God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to go and offer up your son for me on a place that I will tell you. Now, I want you to notice, first and foremost, that Abraham does not question God. He just does it. He just reacts. He just does. He just goes. He doesn't question God. In fact, the Bible tells us he gets up the next morning and he, he gets everything together that he needs. And he and, and, and you know, and, and, his, and Isaac and, and his, the other men who are with him, they just take off in the direction God tells them to go. Now think about that. Never once does he question God. Never once. 
Not once. Now, I'm going to tell you something. The Bible tells us that they traveled for three days. I got to believe, guys, that for those three days, Abraham didn't sleep. Because if I knew that my child was going to be offered up like that, if I knew I only had my child for three more days, I wouldn't sleep either, would you? Come on, guys, I can remember many nights when Kara was four and five years old going into her room at two or three o'clock in the morning, laying my hands on the side of her bed and praying over her, just asking the Lord that one day I would know that child and have a conversation with that child because at that time we didn't know what was going to happen with her. Come on, don't, your parents, many of you, would you sleep at that time? No, you would, you'd stay awake and you would, you would watch your child sleep and you would want, you'd remember all the things that happened. You know, Abraham probably remembered the first time he prayed with Isaac, the first time he had an offering with Isaac. The, he remembered the day he brought him out and says, here, look what God has provided. He recalled those 25 years that he waited on Isaac to be born. He did all of that. You know how I know that? Because I'm a parent. You don't forget the things for your children. He probably remembered the first time Isaac walked. You know, I remember the first time my daughters walked. I do. You know, how I, you know how I knew that Dana could walk? She was eight months old. This is honest to goodness true. She was eight months old. I know that sounds awful young, but she was eight months old. And Debbie's in there making dinner. I'm, I'm in seminary. I come home, and I do what every guy does. I sat in my easy chair, and I dozed off for a moment. You know what I mean? I dozed off for a moment, and when I dozed off, all of a sudden, Debbie said she looked up at the kitchen, and she saw Dana pull herself up on the couch, and she pushed off the couch, and she walked across the floor over to my chair. And Debbie was so enamored by seeing Dana walk for the first time, she didn't say anything. And here's what happened to me. I was asleep until I felt this warm thing on my big toe, and it bit me. I'm not exaggerating. It is the honest to goodness truth. It woke me up and I jerked and she started crying. And Debbie said, she walks, she walks. Yes, thank you. You know how we knew that, that, that you know, Kara didn't walk. She's four and a half years old. She walks. She's four and a half years old. And this, this true story. We, we went that night to a local Chili's restaurant in Indianapolis, Indiana. We went that night to, to go celebrate her walking. And this is, this is a true story. We were... She was so excited now. She couldn't walk, and I'm not making fun. I'm just telling you what it was like. She, she would say, let me, I do it myself is what she would say. And she, she, was, she just got off a walker, and they'd given her leg braces, and she would walk like this right here, but she would not let you help her. And I'll never forget that night when we got through eating. We were walking out of the restaurant, and Debbie walked straight out to the car, and I opened one door, and my daughter Dana opens the other door, and here comes Kara walking through that door just like this, just stumbling back and forth. But she is staying up, and she is so proud. And she's walking through that door. And there's this couple over here to the side, and they're staring at her as she's walking through. And it, it just irritated me. Don't stare at my child like that. So you know what I did? The moment she walked through that door, I walked over to them. I said, I am so sorry. I told her if she didn't get away from the bar, this is what was going to happen. <laughs> I did. I promise you, I did. You can ask my wife. I did it. <laughs> I did it. I remember we bought, we bought Kara because she couldn't jump. We, we bought a trampoline so she could learn to jump. And I remember the first day she jumped about this high off the ground and flopped right on her hiney right in the middle of the floor. Come on, guys. You remember when your kids do stuff, don't you? 
The first time Kara ever said daddy to me is the day she had her first seizure. We were driving along in, in, outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and we had to rush her to the hospital. Didn't know what was happening. They took her back there, and we, and we heard her screaming. And when we heard her screaming, I, I, she'd woken up. They let us go back. And I went back there, and I looked over, and I said, Kara, and she said, Daddy, for the first time. You remember the first time your child says, Mama or Daddy, don't you? Abraham was thinking of every moment that he had with his children. He remembered everything Isaac had done. Everything. And then the Bible tells us that they get to the mountain there. They get to the base of this mountain, and this is where God says, this is where it is, Abraham. Now, you know how that had to be like? Come on. You ever been with someone when they passed away? Someone who was terminal? You know, when we sit in someone's room when they're in a hospital, we, and, and we know that probably they're terminal, you know, we'll, we'll talk and we'll laugh because that's how we deal with our grief. Until the moment that they finally stop breathing and then the grief sets in more and we begin to cry. That's what Abraham had to feel like when God said, there's the mountain. There's the mountain. His, his chest, his heart just sunk. But you know what? I want you to notice, he doesn't question God. He simply gets off everything he needs. He has the fire and the wood and all that he needs. And he turns around and he simply looks to them and he says, you stay here. We're going to go up there and we're going to worship. Now I want to say something to you guys. We think worship is something we do every Sunday when we come to church and we sing. Now let me share this with you. Worship is what you and I do every day as we respond to people because worship is not an event Worship, the heartbeat of worship is obedience to God. See, a lot of us will do this in a service, or we may sing a song, but we're not worshiping because our hearts are far from God. We can't worship unless we're obedient to Him. We have, our hearts have to be pure before God before we really, really worship. The Bible says that He walks up the mountain, and Abraham, Isaac looks at Abraham and says, Father, says, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the wood, there's the fire, there's everything we need. But where's the lamb? And what does he say to him? He says, don't fear, don't worry, for God will provide the lamb for himself. Isn't that a great statement? Think about that. He provided the lamb at that moment, and according to Scripture, you know, later on, several thousand years later, he would provide the lamb, Jesus Christ, that we would need. The Bible says they keep walking to finally they get to the place to that place. And God says, this is it. So as, as would have been the practice, he would have taken 12 stones out and laid them out. And he would have done everything else and laid the wood out and, and built the altar like he had done probably hundreds, if not thousands of times before. But I, I want you to think about this. What did Isaac do? What did Isaac do? I, I got to believe that what Isaac did was, Isaac, I got to believe that that while Abraham was doing this, Isaac was looking for that lamb. He's walking around going, wait a minute, where's this lamb? Where, where's, this, where's this lamb my father told me to be here? Where's he at? And then all of a sudden, he hears his dad say to him, son, come here. Come here. And he gets closer to him. And he says, son, put your hands together like this. And he begins to tie his hands together. Because that's what they would have done 
to an offering that they would lay before God. They would tie the hands and feet together. If he didn't know where the lamb was, at that moment he probably knew he was the lamb. If he didn't know then, he certainly knew when he started to tie his feet. You ever thought about this? You ever thought about how did a hundred plus year old man, I mean, most commentators believe that Isaac was probably 12. Some of them believe he might have been as old as 20. He probably weighed at least 125 to 150 pounds or more. How could a hundred plus year old man get that child on an altar? Guys, I'm 55 and I can barely get out of bed every morning. You know what I mean? How could a hundred plus year old man do that? Listen to me. I want you to hear what I'm saying here. It profoundly impacted me when I realized that probably Isaac had to help his father get himself on that altar, scrunch himself up there, and laid willingly and never questioned his dad. Not once. And the Bible says, at that moment, as would have been the tradition, he would, he would have probably taken his neck back because that's what they would do when they would execute a lamb. They would, they would cut the neck. And you could just imagine Abraham shaking and, 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 and probably crying and just emotional because this is literally his life here in front of him. Come on. Think about it. He, he, he starts to pull his neck back. He starts to take his knife out. He begins to pray, and at the moment he's about to take the knife down and slice his neck, all of a sudden God intervenes. He says, Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. He says, do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you, what's the word it says there? You what? What's it say? Say that again. What does it mean to fear God? What's it mean? We have cheapened the word fear. I've heard many preachers do this. They, say, they simply say it means to res, just simply to respect. No, it's more than that. It literally means to shake in your boots because you're in the presence of holy God. It means to lay ourselves out because what he wants and desires is more than what we want because we're not God and he is. That's what it means. When it says to fear him, it means to be totally, completely surrendered to God without any question whatsoever. That's what it means to fear God. It means our opinions aren't the judgment. It's God who's the judgment. He is what matters. He says, don't lay any, anything, don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear me. Listen to me. We don't fear God in our culture anymore. We don't. We don't fear God. I tell my young people this all the time. That do you fear God more than you fear your friends? Do you fear God more than you fear someone else making fun of you? Listen, we are in a culture that is not Christian anymore. It is becoming quickly anti-Christian. And I can promise you, then unless we learn what it means to fully fear God, 
Many of us sitting, many of us calling ourselves Christians, when the time comes, we will run in the opposite direction because we are not anchored completely solely to Him. We have to learn what it means to fear God. That He, above all things, is what matters, not us. To trust Him with our substance, our life, our very being. That's what this is all about. To do that. To trust God for the future of this church. Trust God for the future of our family. To trust God for the future of your health. To trust God for everything we have. Guys, we've got to stop operating church as if it's some kind of political forum to where we sneak around and do what we want. That's, I, I've been involved in churches for 35 years, and it just, it, it's, it's baffling to me that we have taken what is supposed to be holy, and we've made it so unrighteous because we don't fear God anymore. We want our desires over His desires. We want what we want rather than sitting down and asking what He wants. We judge our success based on budgets, not on people coming to Christ. And then we get angry when we get challenged. What right do you have, pastor, to challenge? Because that's what the truth is. Guys, I'm telling you, what God was telling Abraham that day, he was saying, Abraham, I have great and mighty things I want to do with you. But if you're not all in, I'm going to find it out right now. Come on, who wants to go to battle with someone who's 50% committed? Anybody? 70% committed. 90% committed. Would you want to stake your life on that? No. No. So how do we answer these questions? Why would God require such a price? Well, it's real simple. It's all about surrender. That's what it is. It's all about surrender. Why would God require such a price? Because his price is surrender. You see, there's two kinds of faith in the New New Testament. There's only one that leads to Christ. A faith of admission, just admitting there's a God and believing there's a greater being, doesn't mean we're saved. It's a faith of submission, according to Scripture. It's laying our lives down completely for him. Look at me. It means that our lives reflect Him. It means that when people see us, they see Him. It means that when they see us as His church, they see Him, not us. Why would God require such a price? Because He is God and we are not, and He has a right to require such a price. And His, His, His price is our lives. Surrender to him. You know, I used to judge my success based upon crowd size and things like that. And after 35 years of ministry, I don't judge that anymore. Because I realize that the Bible talks about that there will be a big falling away near the end. Because many times people want their ears tickled. They want to be entertained. They don't want to be spoken to the truth and challenged and said, listen, this is what it really means. But anything short of complete surrender 
God will not compete with you over the allegiance of your life. Guys, I'm speaking this to you because I want you to understand that God wants each one of us to have the fullness of what Abraham experienced. If you watch and look what happened to Abraham and Isaac after this, their lives were magnified more. God used them more than ever, and we're still talking about Abraham today. Why? Because one man was willing to be obedient upon that mountain. Are we willing to be obedient in our homes? Are we willing to be obedient in our community? Are we willing to be obedient as a church? Why would God require such a price? Because the issue is surrender. Number two, how could Abraham actually do it? Let me say this to you. It's because Abraham didn't have a choice. You go, yes, he did. He had a choice. No, he didn't have a choice. Come on, don't you think Abraham, being father, would have gladly placed himself on that altar and sliced his own neck to lay himself down? Come on, wouldn't you do that as a parent? Yes or no? Yes or no? You would gladly do that as a parent, wouldn't you? But that's not what God God required. You see, what God required from Abraham was the greatest thing he had. The one thing that he valued the most, which was his son. So I'm asking you, in the deepest part of your soul, that very thing that means the most to you, are you willing to lay it on the altar before God and trust him with it? Whether it's your health, your family, your job, whatever it might be, our pride, Are we willing to lay on the altar before him? You see, Abraham's only choice is the same choice every one of us has. His only choice was either to be obedient or disobedient. God didn't call him on that mountain to play church. He didn't call him to have a committee meeting. He didn't call him to have a business meeting. He didn't call him to have a deacon's meeting. He called him on that mountain to either follow him or not follow him. He said, you got a choice, Abraham. You can either lay everything you got down before me, or you can walk away. And because Abraham trusted God, look what happened. Look what happened. Guys, several years ago, I know you wonder why you have that card would you take your card out and kind of lift it up for me show it to me? Let me see that. I know you wonder why you have that card. And I know it sounds kind of crazy. But I want to share with you something that changed my life. I challenge you to do this. Just don't write anything on it. Just hold it out there for a moment. Just put it in your lap. Here's what happened to me. when I, Years ago, after Debbie got out of the hospital... It was about two and a half years after she got out of the hospital. God began to deal with Debbie and I. You see, I went to Africa in 1984. Debbie and I were semester missionaries to Burkina Faso, West Africa in 1984. When I went to seminary, we went to seminary with the idea that we were going to go back as missionaries to West Africa. We fell in love with the people of West Africa. We fell in love with being there. And here's what happened. When Debbie got sick... Because of her sickness and because Kara started having seizures, because Debbie required chemo, because all those kind of things, there was no way that the International Mission Board, the Foreign Mission Board at that time, was going to appoint us to go, go, to, go anywhere out of the United States. And one day, I was, in, I, we were, I was at Southwestern, and we were about to go into chapel service. 
And I remember I was standing in the mission center at Southwestern Seminary. I'll never forget this. I was standing in the mission center, and I was standing right in front of this big map. We had this world map that would show you the time that went across. And everybody was down in chapel except for me. And I was standing right in front of Burkina Faso, West Africa, right there, just on that backwards P, right there in the middle. And I was staring at it, and I was angry. And I literally started screaming at God. I began to yell and scream at God and say, God, why, 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 why? God, I can understand why you allowed all this restless happen. We can handle this. But God, why did you take away our call? Why did you take away our call? And I was angry. I mean, of all the things, why did you take away our call? I remember I stormed out of that door and ran down the hall. In Southwestern Seminary, there's this big rotunda. I stood out in that rotunda, and I was angry. And I looked over to the side, and there's these stairs that go up to the, her chapel going on. And I went upstairs and sat in the, the, uh, uh, the balcony area. And I was the only person in the balcony that day. Now, let me tell you what kind of sense of humor God has. I had just been screaming at God down here because I wanted to, I wanted to go overseas, and now we couldn't because of, of what, what God had allowed to happen in our life. And I was all angry and all this kind of stuff. And guess who was in chapel that day? It was the vice president of the Foreign Mission Board. He's begging people to surrender, to go overseas, to take the gospel all over the world. Here I am in the, in the balcony going, yes, Lord, yeah, God, I've already said yes to that, and you're saying no. God, why would you do this? And I was angry until the very end. And here's what happened. That guy stepped out the end of the pulpit, and he did something I never saw. He said, tonight I want you to go home. He said, I want you to take a sheet of paper. I want you to write one word on it. I want you to lay down on it. I don't want you to get up until that word becomes the very definition of your life spiritually. He said, write the word yes. Yes, before God asks you. Yes, before you even know what he's asking. Not maybe, not when I get around to it, not when it makes sense, not when I can afford it. But just the same word, yes, yes, yes. So I went home that night. And Debbie and I started just praying, and we said, okay, Lord, whatever you want. A friend of mine had been wanting to recommend me to the Indiana Baptist Convention to be the evangelism director for Indiana Baptist Convention, because I was living in Texas. I didn't want to go to Indiana. It was cold. It was snowy. I'd never been there. It was up north. I didn't want to do it. And a friend of mine kept after me, and I'll never forget this. That night, when Debbie and I got up, we said yes to God, and I said, God, if you're serious about us going to Indiana, send somebody to us. I am not kidding. You can call my wife and ask her. Two nights later, in nowhere, North Texas, we had a knock on our door. We opened it up. It was a girl selling Southwestern books, and she had an Indiana University shirt on. She sat down in our living room with us for three hours. When she left, I looked at Debbie, and I said, Debbie, get ready. We're moving to Indiana. And five months later, they voted unanimously as a board to call us to Indiana. Guys, I moved away from Tennessee in 1984. I've never lived there again. We've been all over the world 
and God has been able to use us. I'm here today with you. I get to do what I do every day at Liberty University. You know why? Because 25 years ago, I was challenged to say yes, and we said yes. Not maybe, not no, not when I get around to it, not when I can afford it, not when I retire, but yes, today, now, God, here, take it, yes. That's what Abraham did on that mountain. And I promise you with everything in me that if you're willing to say yes to God and mean it and not pick it up again, it will transform your life. God will take you places spiritually and personally that you could never imagine. God will do things to you. I promise you, no matter how old you are, I've seen people. I had a man who was 70-something years old a few years ago who was at a service. I preached this very sermon. And, had, and, and, and here's what happened. A couple years later, when I moved to here to, to Virginia, he, he came up to me, and he pulled out his billfold, and he had this card in his billfold, and he pulled it out. He says, David, you remember a couple years ago when you came to my church? I said, yes. He, he pulled out this little card. He had a faint little yes written in pencil on this piece of paper. He said, I've been carrying this around with me for the last two or three years, ever since I did that that night. He said, do you know what happened to me? I said, no. He said, the day after I said yes, I got a phone call from a bunch of friends of mine asking me to take training for disaster relief. He said, I was 70 years old. He said, I thought this is crazy, but God said, no, you said yes, you got to do it. He said, a year after that, they asked me to oversee the whole thing. He said, I'm 73, almost 74 years old now. He said, I'm overseeing disaster relief for the Ohio Baptist Convention. He said, every time I get a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning and they want me to go to New Orleans or someplace like that, he said, I'm cussing you all the way down there. He said, but on the way back, I'm thanking God all the way back for the hundreds of souls I get to say, say, get saved at my age and my life because I said, yes, thank you for challenging me to do this. Thank you. God is never done with us until our last breath. In Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, if we are willing to say yes to God, he will take us places we could never imagine. But as long as we play a game with him, as long as we don't fear him, as long as we keep saying maybe when I get around to it, I'm not ready yet. God will not compete with you over the allegiance of your life, I promise you. So I challenge you today, will you take that card and will you write a yes on it and will you lay yourself down before God and find out what that yes means? Some of you here have been meaning to say yes to God personally and come to Christ for months now and you've been saying maybe for months and today it's time you say yes. Some of you need to join this church. Some of you need to be baptized, and you know it's time to do that, and you need to say yes to God. Some of us simply need, if you'll excuse me for saying so, to get off our backsides, our blessed backsides, and start doing things for Jesus Christ and stop worrying about ourselves. Because it's not about us. It never has been, and it never will be. To our very last breath, let what we say to God be, yes, Lord, that's what it is. I have a good friend of mine. He died of cancer in 1998. Tommy Lee, he taught New Testament at Southwestern Seminary. I'll never forget this. He said yes to God years ago. His son at his funeral 
said that Tommy refused to take pain medication for the last month before he died because he said he wanted to be coherent and awake so that anybody that walked by his room in the hospital, any attendant who came and saw him, anyone who was around him, he could share the gospel with him until his very last breath. And that's what his yes drove him to do. Guys, he went from heaven to heaven. Today, I'm asking you, with all my heart, will you say yes to God? I'm going to ask you to come to this altar this morning and lay this card down. I want you to lay yourself on it and just pray over it. And then I want you to pick it up and take it and put it in your billfold and let it remind you every day. I don't care how old you are. The answer is yes. No matter how young we are, the answer is yes. Would you pray with me right now? Get ready for our invitation. Father, I pray this morning that as we respond, we will not just look around and think this message is for everybody else. It's not. It's for all of us. All of us, myself included. I'm reminded every day, God, when it's tough and it's hard, like last night getting a phone call late from a student who was struggling, that every moment of every day is a way to say yes to you. It's an opportunity to serve you. That the gospel may be spread throughout the world. Lord, I pray you will call out every person and every soul, every individual here this morning, that we would say yes to you. That we would be willing, Father, to step out and come to serve you, to do whatever it takes, Father, for we love you. So, Father, right now, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, and you've been dealing with their heart, I pray that they'll say yes. If there's anyone here, Father, that's, that's just, Lord, you've been dealing with their heart, calling them to a deeper level, it's time they say yes. Father, touch us as a church and draw us closer to you that we might say yes. And lead this invitation I ask right now, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Come on. Come on, right now. And you come. Bring that card. Just write on the, put on there a yes and bring it down here. And just kneel together as a church and say yes or whatever it takes. I'll be willing to do it. I'll be willing to do it. Would you say that? Come on. Right now. If God's calling you out, I know God's dealing with some hearts this morning. Would you come?